Our first reading today is from Psalm 133. If you'd like to follow along with the text, you'll find it printed in your bulletin insert. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Spirit of the living presence, open our minds and hearts to the reading and hearing of these ancient words, that we might be attentive to your word for us today. In the name of the risen one, we pray, amen. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down upon the beard, upon the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there God ordained blessing, life forevermore. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Our second reading today is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. If you'd like to follow along with the text, you'll find it on the back of the bulletin insert. Hear now these words. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones 
and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Good morning. So I'd, I'd like to start with a, a story that my, my grandfather used to tell uh, probably more often than he realized. Um, the story is about an, an Irish immigrant in, in New York and um, moved to New York and every afternoon he would go to the local pub and every day he would order three pints and he'd say it's one for him uh, one for his brother Johnny in the homeland and one for his brother Sean in the homeland and he did this religiously day after day year after year and uh, one day he came in and he only ordered two pints and a, a silence set in across the pub since everyone you know knew uh, that he always ordered three and why he ordered three there started to be this humming in the pub people wondering what what might have happened and finally, the bartender mustered up enough courage to come to the man and said, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about your brother. And the man looked up, somewhat confused, and said, what do you, what do you mean? And the bartender responded, well, I, you know, I noticed you, you only ordered two pints. And the man responded, well, I, I gave up drinking for Lent. So what does that story have to do with uh, today's scripture and message? Um, it's a good question. Um, uh, you know, I, I actually told the story, not so much for the story, but, but actually for the person who originally told me that story, my, my grandfather. My, my grandfather was born into a, a Dutch immigrant family in Wisconsin. He was one of eight children. Uh, it was a working class uh, family. Um, and uh, when he was probably 18 or 19 years old, he was drafted and went to World War II. Uh, he came back and without a college education, got a job in a factory, and he worked at that factory for about 40 years. Um, when he passed away, uh, he had meticulous records uh, about all of his finances, about everything he had done in his life, about exactly what he wanted for his funeral service, the songs, the program, the whole nine yards. And it was interesting to think that, you know, my grandfather, had he been born in a different time and place, I think could have been a, a pretty successful corporate executive or attorney or a CPA or accountant or something of that sort. Um, and I think he had maybe a reason to be a little bitter about that. I think he must have, he must have known that at some level, um, been upset about you know, his lot in life, if you will. Uh, but he never, I don't think he had an ounce of that in his mind ever. Um, he, he was incredibly proud about what he had accomplished, about his family, 
Um, he was active in his community. Um, he, he was just, um, and he had a great sense of humor, right? And, um, you know, I, I think that made a meaningful impact on, you know, all of us. And if, as I think about why that was the case, I really attribute a lot of that to his, his faith. I think his, his commitment to his faith gave him um, a real grounding, uh, a foundation, uh, and a sense of gratitude for what he had as opposed to a longing for what he didn't. Um, and, and that had, I think, implications for our family over the generations uh, in many ways. I recently read this book, um, Heartland, from the author Susan Smarsh, uh, and it's about the, the plight of poor, working-class families, specifically in the, in the Midwest, and maybe this myth that uh, it's possible with one's hard work and dedication to make your way out of poverty. Uh, and how challenging that really is. That's the, the, uh, the narrative or, uh, of the book itself. Um, and I, I just couldn't help when I was reading this to reflect on our own family's journey and that it was somewhat different than that. Uh, and I wondered why that was the case. And, and I, I do actually attribute a lot of that to my, my grandfather's attitude towards life. Um, and uh, that was... It had its foundation, had it at its foundation was because of his faith and really seeing that be passed along from generation to generation. Um, and I, I was asked today to speak a little bit about how my own, uh, you know, faith or belief impacts my, my everyday life. Um, and I, I think it just mostly gives, gives, or gives me perspective, not all the time, right? Um, but uh, when I think back to uh, my family's journey, my grandfather, uh, it's hard not to be grateful for what you have. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, there's always going to be, in my view, you know, people who you look around and say, well, you know, they've got this great situation and, you know, due to no necessarily effort of their own, why did this happen to me? Or you have a grievance, someone cuts you off and, you know, when you're driving or whatever it may be. And I, I just think, being able to get some perspective on that, being able to be grateful to try to practice that gratitude, uh, and also be able to practice forgiveness. I really, uh, in my heart of hearts, believe uh, those two things, gratitude and forgiveness, are, are really uh, core to living a, a happy life. And I get a lot of that from uh, my, own, my own faith. Um, so I just thought I would share that story. Uh, and now that I... I've thought more about it and reflected on it. I think next time I'm at the pub, I'm, I'm going to have a pint for my, my grandfather, Gramps, uh, to celebrate his, his life and legacy. Thank you. you grew up in a small town? Okay, of those hands that are raised, how many were less than 5,000 people? Okay, all right, so you guys are the ones who really get that it was the kind of town where nobody ever used the blinker on their car because everyone else knew where you were already going, <laughs> or that everybody uh, knows your name and your aunt's name. <laughs> <laughs> 
and your dog's name. <laughs> so that's the kind of town that I grew up in. And, and when I was asked today to speak about uh, how my faith has expressed itself uh, in my daily life and throughout the seasons of my life, uh, it was that small town, that hometown that I first thought of. Because that was where I first had, if you will, the, in that small middle of nowhere America kind of town, um, I had my first, uh, in rural Missouri, I should say, my first uh, faith moments occurred. Um, I have memories of being in a musty basement, uh, listening to the adults upstairs worshiping at our church, while our Sunday school teacher really patiently instilled in us you know, the belief that we're here to be really others-focused, that we're to walk the same life that Jesus walked while he was on this earth, and uh, that I was expected to do the same. And the community residents really helped reinforce these principles. Uh, they really showed going from a me kind of approach to a we approach. For example, if our cows got out, which happens a lot <laughs> when you have miles of fence line in the middle of nowhere USA, the, the neighbors going by would stop their pickup trucks and get out and run the cows back in. Um, and this was in, even during snow and ice storms. And they'd even rig up the fences afterward, right, to keep the herd from getting out again. Everybody just kind of watched after everybody. Yet it was my mother, Sue Ann, who many of you have met here when she's come to visit as she was snowbirding from the winter of the Midwest, uh, who was my greatest role model. And she'd stroll along, you know, and strolling alongside of her on Main Street. It was not uncommon for people to run up to her and thank her for the flowers that she had gotten from her garden and left on their doorstep, or the cheesecake that she had made for an elderly person dropped off on the way to work, or for me to see the thank you notes she had received from different organizations locally, like the Future Farmers of America that she had donated to, or the 4-H or the Club, or the Methodist Church. Not that she gave much money, because as a, a widow uh, single-handedly raising four children, money was extremely limited. But she always emphasized it was important to support our community and those fortunate, less fortunate than ourselves. Now, my childhood growing up on the fourth-generation family farm was really a happy life. Um, it was a loving family. Um, a lot of horses and horseback riding, a lot of chasing of fireflies, I think you call them out here, we call them lightning bugs in the Midwest during the summertime, or sled riding in the winter. And I was surrounded by a tight-knit community and school teachers who were ever supportive and ever present inside and outside the classroom because, for one, most of them attended our church, or we'd run into them up and down Main Street of our town of 689 people. Yes, this village really raised me. The meaning of community really ran deep. Until one summer day in 1984. On that day, my idyllic bubble surrounding my perception of our community burst. I had just come home from college, and it was a hot, steamy, humid, Missouri's Midwest day. 
and I had gone to our town's private swimming pool, which was roughly the size of the sanctuary. And I heard that the Blanton family, um, their pool membership application was, might get rejected. And I thought, what? No family had ever been rejected for a pool membership as long as they were able to pay the $200 annual membership fees. So you know, how could this be? True, no family had ever been rejected, yet no black family had ever applied for membership until that summer day in 1984. A special member meeting was called. Heated opinions on both sides of the bait were exchanged. Votes were blindly cast. The Blanton's pool membership was rejected. So at 19, I witnessed a heart-wrenching injustice, was numbed by the revelation that my other's focused community was only so among their own kind, the majority, the 99%. I was confused, angry. What about my friends, Bonnie, Rhoda, Felicia? What about our Sunday school lessons? But by far the hardest thing of all is that this disturbing incident forced me to confront my own implicit bias. It forced me to look into the mirror and see that I too, at times as a kid, had jumped onto that ugly bandwagon of prejudice, such as when laughing at punchlines of jokes that poke fun of black people. In becoming aware of this uncomfortable truth, of having my own hypocrisy and ignorance and racism spotlighted in my face, I was ashamed. It was painfully clear that for me to truly be others focused, to truly enable thy will be done, I had to confront my own feelings and thoughts and actions. A couple years later, upon graduating from college, I joined the United States Peace Corps. Interestingly, I was posted in Togo, West Africa. During this time, Mrs. Blanton was filing a civil rights lawsuit. I was subpoenaed. I chomped at the bit to go home, knowing that this was the chance to speak out. But I didn't have money enough to fly back from Africa for the trial in Missouri. I got depressed. So I wrote a letter to the editor. It was published in our county paper before the trial, and I can't claim that that swayed the judge nor the town residents. But the judge did rule in favor of the Blanton family and I had found my voice. I bring up the story because, for one, 
today's New York Times Magazine, is talking about in, when the first ship of slaves, of 20 slaves, landed in 1619, and what ensued in the 250 years of slavery since, and how has it touched each and every one of our lives. I also bring it up because it's the first time I remember asking God when I was in a confused state, what would Jesus do? Although I don't always remember to ask this question in the heat of some predicaments, I like to, to think the response to what would Jesus do in XYZ situation is a guiding northern star. So settling on a career was one of those predicaments. And after Peace Corps and to gain skills and I'll pay back many student loans, I joined corporate America. And after years of the grind to make other, others profit and more profit, I began feeling a real emptiness settling over my heart like a fog. I began asking myself, is this all there is? Seriously? I couldn't seem to shake that hollowness, even though I had desirable jobs by most standards working on Wall Street with J.P. Morgan, and then later downtown San Francisco in technology. <clears throat> During the 90s, when it was ever exciting as the internet was coming into play and the bells and missiles attached to that, it's just that my memories of Togo, of millions of people without the basics of nutritious food, of having to uh, walk miles to get water and carry it back on top of their heads, kept resurfacing. I kept thinking, surely there's a better way to harness business to benefit humanity. Surely there is a way to do well while doing good, to integrate meaning and money. So in desperation to get out of this funk, I began creating organizations that harness the private sector's critical products to address social issues. One of was the Global Technology Corps, which brought tech SWAT teams, if you will, kind of like a digital peace corps, uh, to work with U.S. Department of State projects. And our first project was with the Kosovar crisis when uh, many thousands and thousands of Kosovar citizens were fleeing to Poland, Albania, and Germany. And for the geeks among you, Jono, <laughs> we, we planned, we, we, we deployed LAN in the CAN, uh, a local area network that for the, was hooking the satellite to, to make internet happen in these refugee settlements. And it was the first time that had ever taken place in humanitarian aid. So after 60 days, uh, over 300 families were reunited who had run to different uh, refugee settlements in different countries. And this was across seven, seven settlements in six countries. And, and then we went on to co-create a similar organization at the United Nations, UNITIS, the United Nations Information Technology Service, that did very similar things. And by then I had drunk the Kool-Aid that, yes, you know, tech and business could really be a force for good in this world, and I finally felt like I found purpose and meaning while making a decent living. And this coincided with the emergence of social entrepreneurship, which I know you guys have heard me talk about. Uh, so social entrepreneurs, they apply business acumen, right, to solving the world's most pressing problems. And they operate kind of at the crosshairs of business and impact. And a student once put it this way, it's like if you take a cross like a Richard Branson, with a Mother Teresa. <laughs> then you get a social entrepreneur like Muhammad Yunus. And Muhammad Yunus, you might know, went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 
for his company he created, Grameen Bank, which was uh, the first bank to give loans, micro small loans to, to the poor. And now they're in 64 countries and we even have 15 branches here in the United States. So during the dawn of social entrepreneurship, I was a Reuters Digital Vision Fellow at Stanford, and I was there obsessing about how to make the most impact on the greatest number of marginalized people, and obsessing about harnessing business and tech to be impact first, not necessarily profit first. Not that we shouldn't make money. Money is important, and I'm the first to say I love money. But, and we need, we need money to make impact. I mean, even this church, right? We need money to continue impacting lives here. That's a plug for you guys. <laughs> so my fellowship led to launching a social enterprise, a mobile metrics, with the goal of gathering accurate data on the needs, habits, behaviors, perceptions of hard-to-reach marginalized people, which, by the way, doesn't exist, and we're so far off on those numbers. And obviously, those numbers we use to give grants, foundation money, government, whatever. So that, that the purpose of that would be to, so that critical products and services could go back into the, and to be more effectively delivered and, and to these communities. We would hire young local adults to go door to door in those communities using technology to, to collect that data. And then they would deliver back these life-saving products. We would do it in Brazil is where we launched the slums called the favelas, the inner city slums. Um, which just in Rio de Janeiro alone, 35%, official numbers say 35% of the people live there, most would think 50%. Um, and then we ended up also working in East Harlem, New York in public housing. I bring this up because in the early days, and this was one of those other predicaments where faith came in, I myself would do a lot of the interviews of the young adults. And one day in the Brazilian favela of Moro dos Macacos, I asked a question that we always do of prospective young adults who want to be mobile agents. Why do you want this job? This young man held up his hand and said, because I've already lost two fingers from a hand grenade in a war with the police, and I want out. I gulped, and immediately, it was because it was apparent he was in the gang, a very common job in Rio's favelas, especially for young men. My immediate emotion was fear. If we hire him and it doesn't work out, what would happen? If we don't hire him, what might happen? Immediately, a voice, another voice came into my thoughts from a higher power, I'm sure asking, why else are you here? And he ended up hiring Chiago, and he ended up being one of the best mobile agents ever, a natural leader. He went on to get, uh, get a job in computing, put himself through university, got his MBA, and even taught him, uh, went and taught himself English. Today, he's working for one of the world's largest telecommunication companies, uh, NTT, um, a Japanese telecommunication company, managing 40 people. He continues to live in the favela in Moro dos Macacos, where he grew up, and the gang members stop in often to get his advice. The power of taking a chance on people, 
of overcoming fear, and it's not easy. Today, I continue work with young adults. <clears throat> I have the thrill and honor to teach undergrads and, and graduates at Stanford and Columbia Business School on the approach to social entrepreneurship to solving some of the world's most daunting problems. Millennials and Gen Z get it <laughs> and are earnestly out to tackle the planet's most pressing social environmental problems. This generation of impact leaders, next generation impact leaders, they're voting with their dollar and their, and their careers. This generation is choosing whether to buy a fair trade cup of coffee because they know it will support and guarantee a fair wage for those picking the coffee beans. And they're also choosing and seeking out jobs that are going to have a positive impact on this planet. This generation are demanding those products and jobs with impact. That is incredibly exciting and transformative. Indeed, they inspire me more than I them. In Millennials and Gen Z, I have, I have hope and I place my faith. Back to my mother at 84, she still inspires me too. Even though her mobility is more limited, just last week she took a key lime pie to the new minister who just started from Mozambique in our community. And now she's gone from small funding of local causes to funding causes that support people that she'll probably never meet, like Native Americans or refugees. Um, to me, this is so powerful. So I place my faith in the millennials, in Gen Z, in my mother, and I have hope in, in what they're doing in this world. And yes, I do the same with all of you here at 7th Avenue. And I feel that as you're out there selecting your causes that you're passionate about. And it might even be pauses, causes that, in my case, you were pissed off about to help you move into the world to make action. I'll just leave you with what Margaret Mead tells us and reminds us. Never believe that a few caring people can't change the world. For indeed, that's all whoever have. Good morning. As Miles and Melanie mentioned, the topic of today's reflection is how our faith or spiritual life impacts our daily lives. As I pondered this question over the past few weeks, I was somewhat alarmed at how difficult I was finding it to identify anything that I thought of as spiritual in my daily life. This was shaping up to be a very short reflection. <laughs> like many of you, my daily life is dominated by the mundane by definition of this world rather than a heavenly or spiritual one. Up around 5 a.m. most days, to the gym for a quick workout if I can muster the energy, shower, hop on Muni, then BART, to the office in Oakland for a day of meetings, writing, thinking, problem solving, 
reverse the commute to San Francisco, dinner, playtime and bedtime with the family, then to bed to recharge to prepare to do it all again. I don't mean to make this sound like drudgery. There are countless moments of beauty, fulfillment, and joy hidden in the routine, although I'm not always good about recognizing them in the moment. But spirituality and daily life, it almost seems like a contradiction. For me, spirituality has always been about tapping into getting a glimpse of something bigger than myself that helps me understand my place in the world, my place in creation. It's about getting past the mundane. It's about seeking perspective. See, seeing some common themes emerge here. Marta would be entitled to roll her eyes right about now. You see, in our family and among close friends, I have come to be known as perspective guy. It's not a superhero. It's generally not a compliment. Perspective guy really likes to place things into the appropriate context. Perspective guy typically listens patiently to people's concerns and then responds by informing them that their issues are really quite insignificant compared to the civil war raging in X country or the challenges the human race faced in some previous era. Perspective guy is a little too eager to weaponize history and current events. Perspective guy means well, but let's be honest, he can lack a little bit of empathy at times. So yes, perspective can be abused, but put to more constructive ends, I also believe that it can be a window to spirituality. And after more reflection, I realize that there's far more of it in my own life than I may have been aware. Paradoxically, it's there in the micro, the brief, beautiful moments that form the building blocks of each day. The small things that connect us with something bigger. For me, it's there when I arrive home from work and overhear Helena, unaware of my presence, quietly talking to her stuffed animals while she arranges them. It was there the day I took a slow-motion video of Elise running across Robin Williams Meadow in Golden Gate Park and later watched it over and over again transfixed by the look of pure joy on her face, frame by perfect frame. I'm generally ambivalent about technology, but I was grateful for the unique and beautiful perspective it provided in that case. I also find perspective and spirituality in the macro, the places, experiences, and ideas that give me a chance to zoom out and feel small. To be sure, these don't happen every day. But our family tries to prioritize building in these experiences whenever we can. Camping beside the ocean, under trees, and in the mountains that have existed for millennia before I arrived on this earth, and will, I hope, continue to do so long after I'm gone. Sitting by the campfire, looking up at the stars, and pondering the vastness of the cosmos. The fact that we live on one planet and one galaxy, among perhaps hundreds of billions more. Volunteering as a family at Point Reyes during the winter months and helping visitors spot a gray whale during its 10,000-mile round-trip migration between Alaska and Mexico. Going to sleep at night in the volunteer housing at the Point Reyes headlands and listening to the trumpeting of male elephant seals, all the while thinking about the fact that we're on a different tectonic plate, a different piece of the Earth's crust than the one we woke up on when we started our day in San Francisco. It's humbling. I find perspective and spirituality in the new, even little things. Taking a different route to work, listening to a podcast that exposes me to a new idea, 
meeting someone with a different background than my own, traveling either literally or more commonly these days through the pages of a book. So this is how I seek out spirituality, but how does it influence how I try to live? Well, it encourages me to pay attention, to appreciate the magic of ordinary days. It keeps me humble. It makes me intensely grateful for all the blessings in my life. And it leads me to try to emulate, however imperfectly, Jesus' message of love that's reinforced every day in the Seventh Avenue community. Amen.